0: Thank you for joining the Once Changing the World, which is India's first future tech meets sustainability podcast. And today I'm delighted not to have with me Dr. Shamir Qadir, who is an AI leader in drug discovery and advanced healthcare. His expertise lies in bioinformatics, big data, biomedical data science, with strong domain experience across the verticals in pharma, biotech, medtech, digital health, precision medicine, genomics, and drug development. Dr. Kadar has been earlier part of companies such as AstraZeneca, Philips, and Mayo Clinic. His accolades include one of the hundred leading pioneers of AI drug development by Forbes Deep Knowledge Ventures and one of the 16 data scientists making vital breakthroughs in healthcare by Pocket Blog. And he is currently the executive director, Global Head of Data Science at Sanofi. So let uh, me really, really appreciate you taking time and being part of a humble podcast. When we start with COVID, you know, because 2019 COVID happened and we all thought that uh, it'll just take maybe a couple of weeks or maybe max to max month, but it's still there, it's still mutating. You know, it was the Omicron, now we have the Omicron DF.7 variant. It's spreading in China, it's spreading in India. Oh, talk to us about COVID virus. How dangerous is the BF.7 variant and how can we be safe or what's the timelines you think a virus like COVID will take to be completely over.
1: Thank you so much, Eddie, for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. And humanity has always been in in war with uh, infectious disease. You know, whether you, you you take the plague or the cholera or you know any other uh, viral diseases or even diseases like malaria or tuberculosis or so. So we have been in constant war with these type of infectious d- disease over the over the years. And what happened with COVID is that COVID had a few challenging scenarios, right? Like the, the mode of its transmission, Right now that we know the disease a little bit better, we, we know the various ways it could transmit it. And then it also had implications, especially with the earlier, more virulent variants that the mortality rate. And it, and then these two came together, you have high infectivity rate, and then it also affect uh, uh, a, a part of that patients who are infected were, you know, at the risk of uh, mortality, especially those who are already sick with some other type of, you know, conditions, whether it's um, diabetes or or cardiovascular disease or, or cancer or some of the other conditions. So it was, it was really a, a challenging situation for us, but then, you know, just like you, you mentioned, you know, it's, it's constantly in that space, pays and time of mutating because the virus is on its own an intelligent entity so that molecular intelligence is always trying various ways to make sure that uh you know they they survive right like so then what happened with us as humans we we started developing for example simple measures like you know um, mask to begin with. And then we started developing uh, vaccines against it. We started developing therapies against it. So we now have an arsenal of approaches to target COVID, right? Like we understand the disease, we understand some of the mechanism of the disease. So we have a very successful uh, set of vaccines, not just one vaccine, we have a set of vaccines available. Again, therapies are available for those who are uh, for example immunocompromised we have a certain set of therapies called biologics for those who are not immune compromised you have other types of antivirals available so in a way with respect to the the way things are coming along especially with the new variant and the news that we are we are hearing right now I think follow the instructions from your local government wherever you are you know follow that guidance you know make sure you follow, if there is mass mandate in place you know uh, you know make sure uh, you follow that as well so it's in a way you know we have to apply that that um, it's common sense plus uh, you know sort of a diligence as as, a, as an individual because you know when when especially with the b7 variant that what we are hearing is that it's even even more uh, higher infectivity right but i'm still yet to see any concrete data on that these are all all the data that i've seen is coming from again news outlets not have not really seen a lot of um, interesting uh, research articles just yet because it's again it's new. So the variant is new. People are started to studying this as well. Do you foresee a future where there is no COVID? So my my answer for that is it's very difficult to predict that, and there are there are certain reasons for that. I'll tell you. You know we we try to eradicate certain diseases. For example, polio, right? Like you know if, if we take for example in 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 India or or we take uh, TB. We say there is zero polio, right? But still, we'll hear that here and there a few cases will will pop in here and there. So the problem is we we cannot completely contain a living entity. There are certain challenges associated with that. But what we can do is that we can provide an environment where it doesn't get to multiply. If everybody's wearing wearing mask, if everyone have vaccinated, there is not enough opportunity for the virus to uh, what you call uh, to potentially. Uh, propagate within a given community, so that's that's one of the way we could. De- so we definitely see uh, it it going down, but would it disappear? Um, I don't think so. Ah.
0: So yeah. so we we have to you know deal with this COVID virus yeah. and, and figure out strategies or you know the protocols and follow the protocols in place so mm-hmm. that we can be secure and, and safe and. Mm-hmm. Be in the hope that someday it might disappear. Now science has really advanced. You know, you mentioned about uh, you know cholera, uh, malaria, and so many other infectious disease. Now it, it, it's taking time, but you know, I mean, it, it's not as dangerous as it was earlier. And and there's there's this dynamics which is played out, mm-hmm. which which I, I think is really really cool. Earlier, I think to, you know, when, when a virus happened, the, the, for the pharma company to uh, develop and deploy a drug or vaccine would take mm-hmm. a process of maybe around four to six years. But then COVID, something magical happened. The entire process got crunched down. And the development and deployment happened in a couple of months, maybe around five, six months or so. Now, the the reason for this was obviously because of shared knowledge, a a global collaboration. So in in this scenario, how, how is the pharma... Uh, or the drug uh, you know companies how have they been impacted is, is there pressure that event if there is a, another uh, you, you know uh, pandemic of, of sorts which might come do you think that the, the pharma companies would take around the same times or lesser to develop a, a, a drug a drug and deploy so, so what's the impact of, of uh, this
1: yeah so you, you you've said that you know in the right right sense that you know pharma is a very challenging uh in a way a business area with you know very s- slow and low roi what i meant by that is it takes like you said you know f- f- four to six years is really really uh on a hopeful side but typically take four to ten or twelve years and if you if you compute all the phases of drug development that includes preclinical clinical as well as post clinical the entire quantum of investment will come around 2 billion dollars for a successful drug molecule now uh, what what has been uh, historically done in the field is that can we use data or can we use computing? Can we use simulations? Can we use other types of methods and approaches in parallel to experimental setup so we can reduce time in each of these milestones? Can we find, uh, do preclinical research faster? Can we do clinical research faster? Can we get the drug to the market faster? Can we find what happens in a post-market scenario faster? So we have been, uh, you know, historically been applying Computers in, in biomedicine to solve some of these problems. We developed a machine learning solution, we, we we developed a protein model, and then we used that for understanding that particular disease mechanism called neurodegeneration. That was 20 years ago, if you think about it, like you know, uh, eight, 20 18 to 20 years ago. But now what happens in in pharma is that we have access to computing, access to data, access to advanced AI. Each of these steps that we talked about, like preclinical, clinical clinical, and postclinical, now we can accelerate that. So what happened in the COVID era is that we, almost all companies put at least some of their focus or all of their focus on this one disease. And then, so what happened was that we were able to identify, typically to design a drug, you need to find drug targets. And that has been able to do in much faster way. Because we have been building these type of solutions over the years to do uh, drug discovery. And then some of the things were like, we were already developing antiviral. So we knew that, you know, what a good antiviral should look like. Or for example, for a vaccine, we already were looking at some of the similar types of vaccine that were the coronavirus was belongs to. So it in my opinion, the the history or, or sort of that acceleration uh, happened because we have a history of development in place, number one. Number two, we we did a, what we call a quantum leap over the two years because typically, like we talked about, it takes 10 years, it takes 2 billion. C- cost-wise and um, time-wise, again, we had success, but I don't think any drug, any drug development uh, effort in COVID would have costed any, any dollar amount less. I don't think so. But the time-wise, because we did... Pull all our resources to solve one problem, that definitely helped. And I can also tell you that things like, the, for example, uh, let's take natural language processing, a very fundamental technique in, 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 in that we use all the time in business, right? So that, for example, has been employed to understand what was patient respond to certain type of COVID therapy? Was patient feeling better? So instead of you, you typically take 10 years to collect this information or, or two years to collect this information. Systems and methods and, and protocols have been defined or developed that will bring in this information from real time from patients, parse it, understand what patient is thinking, and then use that information. So just, just like a lot of things have actually contributed for that quantum leap. So in terms of science, in terms of technology, in terms of human resource, all of them contribute, And that's why, like I said, you know, if you take the Spanish flu, for example, in the in back in the days, it was quite challenging. A lot of people died in, in its first way, right? Like now, now think about it. Like we all have flu as an annual event in our lives, right? Like you may take, you know, flu medicine or you get a flu shot or you wait for that to come and go. It, it became part of our life. So that's where, you know, what I'm thinking, um, that quantum leap was possible now because of the history of science we were doing and then we were able to put all all our resources into one aspect and and i hope uh, you know like this like you mentioned you know it will become as normal as flu eventually
0: right right uh, so so you're saying that the the convergence of those various works, uh, uh, you know, over the years has made it possible to accelerate drug development and deployment. Uh, now I'm going to digress a little bit because I'm going to stay in, in, in the, in the pandemic and, and the COVID space, you know, there's these movies you know, lots of movies, especially Hollywood you know, likes to show that zombies, you know, where zombies are there. And uh, today you mentioned, you know, the technology is like really making it accessible for anyone and everyone to kind of tinker around, even with the source code alive, because, you know, we have got something on CRISPR, Cas9, genetic editing, and we can kind of, you know, tinker around, edit, add a, a genome. Uh, just recently, I saw in the news that the scientists have revived and characterized 13 new pathogens, what they termed Zombie viruses, and and they found that they, they they remained infectious despite it was spending many millions of years trapped in the frozen ground. So I, I just wanted to your your views on, on this grow, growing stack of knowledge, where these tools are being more accessible for everyone. What what is going to be the impact of that? And do do you do you do you see that in the far out future that a gene could kind of mutate and a zombie could kind of come out of it? It's just, I mean, like a far out question, but just wanted your views on it.
1: Yeah, so great, great question. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of um, uh, Hollywood movies and, you know, for that matter, zombies movies in, in particular. And, and one of my favorite pandemic movies actually a movie called Outbreak. I don't know if you've seen that. This 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 movie probably came in 2000, early 2000 in a way talks about uh a a similar respiratory virus that had a transmission from a bat to a pig and someone consume uh uh, you know uncooked pork or something and then they get that and then the, the virus spread around the world and now fast forward in in 2020 we have seen that happening so Movies are sometimes, you know, a good way to do that sort of science communication, for example. So you've asked about that one part about the movie. The other thing, and as as I was a kid, you know, I still remember probably I was in my eighth grade or so going to this movie called Jurassic Park, the very first original, the OG Jurassic Park movie, where they showed this beautiful animation of they take a blood from a prehistoric mosquito that's been trapped in an amber, piece of an amber. And then they take that blood, they they clone that, and they have this tiny little dinosaur baby that's coming out. Now, when I was was that kid, I I was fascinated by what they were doing. Fast forward now, you mentioned about CRISPR-Cas9 and some of these emerging genetic editing technologies. We can now do editing. You know, you can do you can do base editing. You can you can edit a, a small region of your genome. You can you know make sure if you understand the mechanism, you can remove a portion of, of a particular gene. There are a lot we could do, and it has a huge. If we get a combination of that technology right, we are going to potentially uh, you know I'm, I'm being cautious here potentially cure a lot of disease. And I'll tell you, you know, and and then I'll come back to your original question on the zombie virus. And the reason why, what I meant by that is there's a disease called cystic fibrosis, right? Like the the lung get uh, fibrotic uh, tissue and breathing will be difficult and patients have a very difficult life. We know the, we know the disease, we know the gene that drives the disease, the genetic cause of the disease, but we don't have a therapy. But now everybody, maybe like maybe 30, 40 companies are trying to look into into that. Can we use genetic editing to cure or or potentially edit out or edit in uh, you know CFTR um, cystic fibrosis gene? So is that there? Not yet. Around the world, different companies are trying for. So let's let's put on that for a whole. For a second. So I'm I'm really excited about what genetic editing is going to bring in and and in you know that whole group of therapies called living therapies would would bring bring to the table. And and computational aspects like bioinformatics or, or or data science could play a significant role. You know, for example, which region we should target, you know, things like that. We we often develop algorithms to do that. Now, coming back to the zombie virus aspect, and, and we often see this, in, especially in popular press, that, okay, in Amazon uh, forest, we found a, a new set of virus. In some other places, we found a new set of viruses. And like you mentioned, uh, these are prehistoric zombie viruses. And people often have a confusion that why are, they, are we going into the Amazon forest, finding new viruses and dis- destroying that, bringing that to the world? That's required because then if there is a new class of virus that exists out there, we should we should better be studying about them. You were able to develop a drug, a vaccine, and a prevention strategy against COVID because we have been studying coronavirus for quite some time, right? So it's it's extremely important for humanity that that we we study these viruses. And now coming back to the most important and the the challenging part of your question is there a chance for uh, you know one of these. Uh, "Quote unquote zombie viruses to to come back to us. There could be a possibility, and that people have done some modeling work on that. You know, what is the scenario of something to come in, and 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 in a way, COVID versus situation were you know it has high infectivity rate and uh, you know you know uh, uh, significant mortality rate also. So we have seen that. You know, would it get worse than that? We don't know at this point of time what would that next virus would be, but." outbreaks are happening yes we even as we talk then around the world but you know there, there could be endemic disease outbreaks could happen right like could, will be happening is happening right as we speak right now yeah. and it's extremely important that we do trace track and audit the viral world or or rather the bacterial world around us because it's extremely important otherwise we won't we won't have a clue about what's going to happen so it's extremely important we we, we call that you know basic research or, you know, basic virology research—it's extremely important to do that. Um, yeah, you know, but great right. like question. <laughs> right. Yeah. So,
0: so I think you know, we as as the human race, I think we always need to be a little one step ahead. Because technology is getting <clears throat> more and more democratized and there'll be always all, all kinds of people, you know, who, who would want to kind of tinker around and, and you know, do these things. And, and you you pointed out something about uh, Hollywood. I think artists and creatives have this very uncanny sense of kind of predicting or kind of building that future and then eventually scientists and researchers kind of say okay, okay now technologically is it it's, it's possible right now what they've seen in possible movies or or books which was written possibly 50 or 30 years back and now it's kind of possible and that's 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 what happening and i mean I know, the, uh, artists have these things which is uh, you, you mentioning about genetic editing uh would, would you would you want to elaborate on that and the its role how do you think that, you know, there's this there's this saying or there's this promise that once genetic editing becomes mainstream and get, becomes more accessible, it would completely eradicate all diseases? Is that something that you believe in?
1: No, there will be still uh, disease threats to humanity, in my opinion. This is my personal opinion. But then that's where we have to think about what is genetic editing, how, how the world of therapeutics works. And I, I'll, I'll take a simple example. A few years ago, I had to go to a doctor for for medication for hypertension. So he gave me a medicine. Uh, it didn't it didn't work for me. It, actually, my symptoms got worse, and then I have to go back to him, and then he gave me another one, and then he made a combination, and then that actually worked for me. Let's, let's and I'm sure almost every one of us goes through this exercise, right? Like, why is it why is it happening? So what happens with the drug development is that so we even the most blockbuster drug let's say let's take for example statins are considered to be a trillion dollar drug in the world there are patients who respond optimally to statin you know there there are patients who never respond to statin and patients who have a, a mediocre response to, to statin now we are living in this sort of modern world you go to a doctor's office doctor do your um, vitals and everything he prescribe you a medication Doctor doesn't know, preemptively, he doesn't, he or she doesn't know whether you are a good responder or a medium responder or a non-responder. But I'll tell you, we have technology to, 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 to assess that right now. It was there like maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So there is a challenge in our field, especially in biomedicine. Even if you have a, a technology that's being developed from bench to bedside, to come to patients, unfortunately takes almost 20 years, quote unquote, 20 years, there is a delay. And what is that delay? Just like, um, you know, uh, we have to make sure that we run clinical trial, we we have a protocol, we run clinical trial, we bring this to the patients and then making sure that the, you know, let's say, let's say we have have a test to understand uh, drug metabolism by patients you know, it has to be available everywhere. Affordability matters, accessibility matters, accuracy of the test matters. So what happened with, with, with genomics and genetic editing, all of this is was we were look, studying human disease, one disease at a time and looking for gene responsible for that. For example, the cystic fibrosis is a good example. We knew that one gene is very important. So then we thought, okay, what if there is similarly in diabetes, what's happening? So we recruited 100,000 diabetes patients and 100,000 non-diabetes patients and took their DNA, looked, sequenced their genome, or, or rather done genotyping back in the days. We basically look for what is their genetic difference between uh, diabetes and non-diabetes. But then instead of finding one or two genes, we have seen a f- several genes. And then when I move from European Americans to African Americans, I see different part of the genome is uh, associated with it. When I came to Asia, within Asia, I'm seeing different clusters. So what happens is that so we 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 realize that genetics of human disease, symbol disease, com- or even complex disease, is much more complex. It was not a single gene driven, it was most of the disease that we see, diabetes or hypertension or any of these, they are what we call as uh, omnigenic effect. A lot of genes contributing small, small aspect. And then your lifestyle, your diet, where you live, all of this actually matters now. So now what happens? So that's one of the aspects. So now coming back to your question about uh, genetic editing and genomic engineering aspects. Over the last 10 10 years, when I, when I moved to the US for my postdoctoral training, I was at, uh, at the Mayo Clinic. We have been looking into cardiovascular disease. What are the genetic basis of cardiovascular disease? I was working with Dr. Iftiker and team, and we've done a lot of, lot of studies around this, this aspect. So we thought, how can we use this aspect, this, this, inf- this information to improve patient lives? So we designed a trial, a clinical trial, where we you know, where we took a group of patients, around 200 to 50 patients and divided them into two, right? So it was a randomized control trial. And one arm received a, a traditional risk score. What I meant by that is they look at your blood value, they look at your age, they look at your family history and say, okay, there is a two-year risk for a heart disease or a five-year risk for a heart disease. And the other one we did this genetic sequencing and then they told them we gave them the normal risk score also and by looking at their genome we found that some of them are even though they don't have any uh, what you call other risk in you know, a visible risk their genetic was saying that they are likely to be likely to have an event in two five or ten years and then we send them uh, you know we did some basic lab work we we exposed them to this information and then we, we had them sit with the genetic counselor and the genetic counselor will explain what a genetic risk means, what can you do about it? And some of them said, okay, since I have higher risk for you know, a cardiovascular disease, I want to start some, some therapy now. And then we told them all of them to come back after six months and then we measured their, let's say lipid level and cholesterol. And they, we asked them whether they, they did more exercise, you know, what happened? the patient who were exposed to genetic information had lower levels of cholesterol. You know what they did? They didn't didn't exercise better. They actually started medication early. So that's just exposing the genetic information to a patient in real world what will happen. Now coming back to your question about, you know, different aspects of genetic editing. The problem right now is we know work to edit we still figuring out how best to edit number one number two the therapy that we have that we are developing what about its durability whether is it good for two years five years ten years or for the lifetime the genetic medicine field think it's going to be lifelong you do it once and you'll be done you don't have to take you know blood pressure or you know for example cholesterol medication lifelong you just do a gene editing once and done you will be going home and you're done for life which is a better proposition for patients you know maybe depending on whom you ask like some patients want that some patients don't want that now it comes back so the, the 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 ultimate question that you asked me was that would genetic engineering you know literally you know close the case for drug development i don't think so because we call drug modality or rather different type of therapeutic modality the pill that we 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 eat on you know depending on the disease is actually primarily they are small molecules they're chemical entities so we sometimes get a you know for example the the vaccines like depending on which vaccine you got if it's an mrna it's a it's a nucleic acid, or a, or a, or a sort of a biologics. Uh, we call it biologics. Sometimes you take an antibody as a as a drug, so that's again a biologics. For example, sometimes you can take um, what you call as a gene editing as a, as a as a therapy. So none of these therapies could could give you hundred percentage outcome in hundred percent of your patients because we are all different. We have what we call as. Inter individual variation. Like I said, when we did the genetic analysis, we found that it's not the same genetics driving diabetes around the world. There are shared genes, but there are different genes depending on your lifestyle, where you're coming from, what's your ancestry, depending on. So my answer would be that it will help us to solve the case for certain diseases, but not for all. That's that would be that would be my take.
0: Right, right. And, and you mentioned that, you know. <clears throat> we are such complex beings and there is so many things which is affecting us, the environment, what we eat, uh, our lifestyle and so on and so forth. So uh, there is also this field called precision medicine. Do, Do you think that once we have this precision medicine where we are tackling a person you know would would that be the way forward for the future of healthcare
1: fantastic question and that brings to sort of you you're bringing my sort of my career together and uh, that's exactly uh, the problem we are solving at at sanofi so for example like you know let's 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 say you know who is that patient who could get maximum benefit from this therapy so we can target that population or subpopulation of patients where he he or she is going to get, get the optimal benefit. And that's, you know, it's about time. We have been talking about Christian medicine for, in my opinion, around 10 to 15 years now, maybe within the next five years or so, we should be able to see Christian medicine strategies for a whole lot of disease. Christian medicine is already, you know, having said that it's already happening in one way or the other in oncology space. A lot of advancement has been happened in oncology state, the oncology space. But for, for non-oncology disease, it's actually still have a lot of catch up to do. So precision medicine within the concept, the brief description is that getting the right drug or therapy to that patient via right route at the right time to that right patient. So it's very simple, very straightforward concept, but can, we, is, is, can I get precision medicine? Because I'm someone who has done my genome sequencing, I've done my uh, genotyping, there is no way I can take this to a physician because physician is not yet ready. Maybe there are a few of them out there that's ready, but we don't have clinical protocol. We don't have a way, way to cover in, in my insurance. So there is a lot of layers of complexity there that we need to we need to solve. But I hope, really hope that with the right balance of of invention, technology, discovery, policy, and regulation, we will be getting closer uh, to sort of that precision medicine space and. And that's the hope that's what we are working towards. And, um, you know, I'm really excited about, you know, what's what's coming up, especially for uh, diseases like autoimmune disease or, or neurodegenerative disease, or even um, cardiovascular as well.
0: So, so the healthcare industry has been very passive, but today it, it's becoming more reactive with DNA sequencing, possibly becoming really, really cheap over the years. And mm-hmm. and, and, the, and you mentioned about, you know, how these uh, accelerating technologies, you know, like through AI and machine learning, uh, the entire healthcare is, is going to be uh, upended. So someone who's been invested in the space, could you share some examples of how, you know, AI, machine learning is being leveraged for healthcare? I can tell you a
1: specific example of a project that we've been, we've worked in the past with Dr. Parto Sengupta, who's an echocardiographer. He's, he's one of the leading um, echocardiographer in the world. So he came to us a couple of years ago when I was at Mount Sinai with Joel Dudley and his team uh, and working as a, as a scientist there at Ma- uh, Mount Sinai Health System, which is one of the largest health system in the New York City area. The the challenge he was, Shamir, I have a problem. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm an expert in in diagnosing a particular type of heart disease. But then the way that I do is I do this, I look at this part of the image of the heart and then i do this part and then i change the gradient here and then i revert this one so he he opened this 12 window situation and he said this is how I, I define this patient so there is you know there is no way that i can teach this to some of my my colleagues i right? like you know, it's, it's it's his intuition because he's seen a lot of these images over the years he's very passionate about that disease and he is literally a human eye system to, to differentiate that particular type of, of two type of cardiovascular, uh, subtypes of cardiovascular disease. And then, um, you know, computer vision and all was like still, you know, sort of catching up. I'm talking about, you know, early um, 2014, uh, like that. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of advancements. There's still CNN and all, you know, convolutional neural networks and all still coming up and being applied actually. So, we're not yet in the digital uh, pathology or digital imaging just yet. So, so one of the thing we we thought was we, we we developed a system, an AI system that mimic his diagnosis using a combination of, you know, uh, different types of algorithms and methods. And then uh, it, it, it 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 was not like 100% accurate. Was it around 80, 85% accurate? But then what happened was that we, we and then we designed a protocol uh, that, you know, we can have a system that can Mimic his thinking uh, to do that, and then we, we presented it back to him. And then, then the problem is, you know, we cannot simply use an algorithm that's been trained on one, page, one, one physician and apply it to patients. That's not possible, right? So, so what we we thought was, what if we could we could do this on a larger database, right? Like you know, and and with different physicians have contributed to this because everyone uh, you know do this diagnosis a little bit differently. So now what happened is that that entire diagnostic procedure will take at least half an hour for a trained cardiologist. We can now have an AI system do that in a, in a, in a matter of minutes. Is that system perfect? No. You Would it be predicted correct always? No. But then what happens is that it, it can tell you how confident that prediction is. Then if the confidence of algorithm is lower, a physician can step in and do the diagnostic. So we decide a human-in-the-loop system. So the net saving is that a physician can do his job faster, a patient can get his diagnosis faster, treatment can be started faster. So that's a simple example that I can tell you in the diagnostic space. And then fast forward to almost every aspect of healthcare, whether it's patient monitoring, right? For example, you know you want to monitor uh, patients in 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 hospital. And I can tell you an interesting example that we did again within the healthcare setting. So there is a concept of sitters in hospital, patient sitters. What I meant by that is uh, patients who are you know who are either having a sur- after after surgery or things like that, or even patients who are older. Uh, you need to have somebody next to them after their surgery or their procedure because they might be already under anesthesia and all of that. And the sitter is required to sit there to make sure that the patient don't fall. So falls are an actually a major challenge for hospitals, especially in the Western place because we don't have anyone else in the room or within the hospital room. So can AI support this one? You know, Can AI augment this instead of having a cedar always, can we have a combination of computer vision and other aspects around that? So, so that's, again, one of, this was a sort of a patient need as well as an operational aspects as well. And uh, the other thing I can tell you is that, similar to these two examples, hospital readmission. Readmission in the United States, what happens with the readmission is that, let's say if someone came in for a treatment, let's say um, for heart failure, for example, So they stay in the hospital for five days or five to 10 days. After they go back, they're not supposed to come back for anything related to heart failure for the next 30 days. If they come back, then their cost of the care belongs to the hospital. Patient doesn't have to pay. And then that also, since the care was not up to the mark, that's the reason they are coming back. So the rating of the hospital will go down as well so can you predict who is more likely to come back so that we can either give them extra care or see what we can do how do we how do we triage patients that way so similar to this we have applied ai to a variety of use cases all the way from uh, clinical to operational to administrative aspect across the spectrum of healthcare delivery, we have applied different types of AI. And that, you know, now what I'm doing right now within the pharma is we, we are bringing all of this together in pharma, because in pharma what happens is that we need better clinical trials, we need better better um, uh, discovery. So we are using all this information to improve our clinical trials, improve our, our target discovery. The collective knowledge that, or the kind of work we have been building over the years are now being applied to, to pharma as well. So. Hopefully, we'll, we'll have better, more optimized clinical trials. We'll have,
0: uh, you know, better therapies developed uh, faster as well. Yeah. So this is a circle. AI is being used for drug discovery. W- would you like to elaborate on that and maybe talk about some of your works that you've been doing, you know, at Sanofi? So AI is being,
1: you know, used like, just like we mentioned about three main areas, right? Like, you know, in, in, in preclinical discovery research, in clinical research, and then in, in post-clinical scenario. And in, in, in preclinical area, one of the, you know, let's say we have a disease, right? Like for example, uh, you know, you're interested in, uh, just for our, our, our discussion purpose, let's say type two diabetes. And we have certain diabetes drugs, but we, you know, like like we talked about, we still need uh, a better better therapies, right? Like for example, you know, there are a subset of patients who don't respond to existing therapy. Patients need a new, new class of medicine. Uh, so how do we find it? So so ai plays a critical role in mining data around a disease so we we build for example knowledge graphs uh, around disease specific uh, sort of hypergraphs around a particular disease and then see what are all the areas that's that's we have we have already developed drugs and what are the areas we could potentially explore within within a, within a particular disease for example for diabetes and then but when you go to some other disease areas for example uh, you know, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, where we don't really have good therapies, which is a different problem, right? Like one is you have a few few drugs already; the other, we don't have a lot of drugs actually. So how do you how do you develop a, a drug for a disease like Alzheimer's? So you want to make sure you design a drug that you know that if you're taking it, crosses the blood-brain barrier, goes to the brain, it does what it's supposed to do, and so that patient will feel the better uh, by taking that particular medication so so what happens in in the discovery area is this 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 entire research is done in different stages so let's say if i identify a, a particular uh, pathway associated with alzheimer's disease so now i wanted to know where in this pathway should i target what is my target gene or protein and then can i block it if i block i get a better outcome like patients uh, have a better uh, motor neuron activity for example or they they have uh, uh, better memory skills when they when we do an outcome measurements so you do you, you do a computational model you look at you look for pathways you find pathways you find targets you design a molecule and then you do test in cell lines first in a petri dish if it's successful you go to a mouse model if it's successful, you go to a non-human uh, primates like, uh, you know, uh, monkeys and, and whatnot. And then from there, once everything is, looks good, then you take this to a small number of patients. You run what we call as a phase one, uh, you know, assessment, phase one trial. And then you do a phase two and a little bit higher number of patients. You look for safety and efficacy. If that's also successful, you launch a... A phase three trial in a significant population, a few hundreds or thousands of patients. And if that's also, after that also, you have an outcome with that. And if it hits the outcome, if it's clinically beneficial, that drugs will be approved by whether it's FDA or any other regional uh, agency will approve that drug. So this is done by an army of people and this generates a ton of data, petabytes of data for projects. If you start from uh, a single disease, for example Alzheimer's disease, that trajectory will generate a ton of data. There is no way a person can comprehend all that information. No single team can comprehend all that information. So that's where technology like graph machine learning, for example, is actually helpful. So we use a variety of AI, in my opinion, we apply a variety of AI approaches within each of these analysis stages. And you know, I call this AI net just because instead of having a killer app that solved this end-air problem, we have small modules of AI applied to this. And I can tell you, can you if you have if you have a pathway and you have a, a drug target, targeting that drug, what would be my side effect in my phase three or phase two? If I can predict that, I don't have to do all this investment because the side effect is going to be a severe or adverse event, that drug is not going to get approved, right? So so the idea is to apply AI to each of this step, whether it's to understand the disease, whether it's to find a drug target, whether it's to develop a chemical entity, whether it's to predict the clinical outcome, can I use AI for that? And my short answer is yes, yes, and a resounding yes in each of this step individually. And there is no magical system that can do uh, across this because people are trying to do do that, trying to develop that. But again, uh, it has its own challenge because the readouts in each steps are different. The first, the the phase one trial is only about you know, your safety and the second phase two is about you know safety and efficacy yes. aspect. Phase three is where you look for all of the other aspects. But then, so let's say if I, I have one disease, Alzheimer's disease, I have one pathway, 20, 20 genes or proteins, have developed a, a thousand molecule. Only one of them has to be successful. But what if I use my AI and my AI helped me to find, out of this thousand, these 10 are the most important candidates. That's saving me time, money and effort for 990. Otherwise I have to test all 1000 of them. The cost is you know, a, a factor of each molecule you're talking about millions of dollars, so that's where AI is helping. It's it's nudging in every step of uh, drug discovery and development.
0: Would you have any advice to students or organizations here in India who you know who are looking at leveraging AI or machine learning for healthcare?
1: So sh- sure, you know, like I said, you know, uh, AI can have a huge impact because we we often say that. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the computing power. I would say that's not true. Like I said, I picked up, you know, I was trained in India uh, you know, for, for my master's and my PhD and I came here and I can tell you that the places, like I said, you know, I didn't have access to uh, to machine learning when I was a master's student, but I had to go to Pune. So, so India has access. You just have to be curious and and uh, reach out. I'm sure everyone will help, especially to students. I had a lot of, you know, uh, mentors, that's not directly my mentor. I had amazing mentors, blessed with amazing mentors, but at the same time a lot of people I reached out either by LinkedIn or by sending email have helped me a lot. So I would say one aspect is that students should reach out, should be open, should be curious. Uh, And then in my opinion, good to get a balance of two things. If if you're interested in uh, some of these applied uh, areas of AI or ML, Good to have a domain knowledge it could be finance it could be uh, pharma it could be medicine it could be you know uh, uh, anything that you want to do but along with that strong ai skill so if you're just only a, a pure vanilla first ai person the problem is you are a technical person but if you bring in a domain expertise your value will be you know 10x or 100x for that matter so have passionate about whatever subject you're interested in doesn't matter whether it's physics chemistry or or or, or biology doesn't matter or even arts now that nowadays there is generative AI supplying to arts and we have seen but we need an artist to basically look through all that that you've generated right like it's it's not easy so you that that core skill of being a human is extremely important and then no AI in my opinion AI is not going to replace a, a drug discovery scientist or are going to replace a physician in my opinion AI will replace a scientist or a physician who doesn't use AI at his work. So that's a difference, right? Like, so you still need doctors, you still need scientists, you still need artists, but AI is just another tool for you, you know? So just, just have that exposure as early as possible, uh, collaborate, uh, you know, join community projects. And, um, you, know, I know, you know, in my opinion, uh, with with all that available, like you know, whether it's podcast or, or or YouTube channels, or you know, there are different avenues for learning. Believe in active and passive learning. You know, in school and college, you only learn certain things, but your passive learning matters, right? Like if you if you watch five AI videos, YouTube will give you a hundred per day because that's how the algorithms are designed that way, right? Like so. So it's extremely important that you do have a balance on, on both aspects. So that's one thing about, I, I would, you know, I would love to be a student these these days because we did not have YouTube or, you know, whatnot back in the days. So there's a lot more avenues to learn these days. So it's really utilize all of that opportunity. And then, you know, build. Build a website, build a build a robotic car, uh, you know, build a sculpture. It's extremely important to to be into that culture of building. Because that's you know I had a you know, in, in, you know what differentiated me in, in my school and in, in college days like I was I always believed in that aspect and and I was always doing something you know one, one thing after the other we've done a lot of projects during masters that helped me to get into a PhD program that you know I did a lot of uh, AI applications as a PhD student that helped me to find a postdoc program so it always helps you know as, because you know doing the academic work is one aspect but being active and and building things matters. So build is that matters too. And and I hope universities and organizations would encourage that culture
0: too. Thank you. Thank you, Shamir. Really, really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast and sharing your learnings. It was a complete learning experience for me. If you had to paint a picture of what the healthcare industry would look like in the next 10 years, what would be your answer and what's your your roadmap, your your moonshot?
1: It will become, you know, my, my simple, I keep it very simple. It will be more precise, hopefully, hopefully. And, and, uh, you know, we can potentially, you know, give the right drug to right patients at the right time. So we can, we can save that, you know, the the experience we talked about throughout the session. Um, You know, uh, I I hope things will get more precise over the 10 years. And um, I hope uh, we'll be better prepared for handling pandemics as well. So those are my two, two, to predictions
0: so exciting time so really appreciate you taking time being part of our podcast into my listeners if you like what you see in here then please press the subscribe button and until next time see you guys bye bye thank you thank you really appreciate this